1: Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
0: The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer
3: inside the box of oddities. So we've celebrated, I think, what, this is our sixth month in uh, Florida. Yes. And we moved from Maine, of course, and I had convinced Kat, because I lived in Florida a, a short time uh, before we came down here.
2: In the pre cat years.
3: Right, and I had convinced Kat that... Uh, Alligators were such a problem that you you had to actually time the exit from uh, your car and run a zigzag pattern to your house to make sure you weren't attacked,
2: Um, which
3: excited her.
2: It it's not entirely accurate, but it's also not that far off. <laughs> I was under the impression that I would see alligators on the reg and I do not.
3: No, she's been looking for alligators in the wild since we've been here and finally she saw one. Yes. Of all places.
2: I We were at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> And so there's two terminals at the airport and you have to take the train or yeah, I guess it's, a train. it's like a monorail Yeah, from one part to the other. And that goes over a lake. And I saw an alligator at the lake at the airport
3: in its natural environment. Yeah. The Delta terminal.
2: And then um, I was dropping you off at the airport in Sanford. And uh, while leaving the airport, drove over a bridge and saw an alligator. So apparently, my only alligator experiences will be at airports.
3: Yep, two different airports. That's the only time she's seen an alligator in the wild since we've been here. Uh, I love our life. I got a question for you.
2: I love questions.
3: Can being sick make you look more attractive? To who? just people in general. Over the past four centuries, up until the present day, the answer would be yes.
2: Oh, because you're thin and pale?
3: Yeah, it's an odd, an odd occurrence that has taken place over the last 400 years when emulating the people with a malady or serious disease not only became fashionable, but influenced fashion for generations to come. <laughs>
2: Well, I do remember there was an illness we talked about a while back. I remember we were still in the main basement and it only seemed to affect wealthy people. And so I can remember you saying that the people of that time would often try to look sick so that they would seem affluent.
3: Yes. No, it's true. In recent years, we're familiar with like heroin chic. That started out in the early 90s and was born out of the grunge movement. And it morphed into a, a waif-like look that became heroin chic.
2: And we wonder why people of my age have eating disorders.
3: That's exactly right. It became fashionable for models to use no makeup, have choppy, uh, messy hair, w- while wearing grunge fashion, which, as you, I'm sure you remember, consisted of torn jeans, t-shirts, flannel shirts, and a pair of chucks.
2: Still what I wear. i just fat. two of them put together (laughs) the fashionable
3: look at the time was excessively thin almost elfin like look and hollow cheeks and it was glorified in magazines Uh, later in the 90s heroin chic led to the pro anim movement and this was the glorification of anorexia nervosa of course that's an eating disorder that can, in extreme cases, be fatal. Anorexic chic is what they called it. So a trigger warning here. uh, We're going to talk a little bit about eating disorders. Anorexic chic became a thing around the turn of the millennium, and it's... um,
2: Gross? Is that the word you were looking for?
3: And it's been growing in the backwaters of the internet, online beauty world. And it created a community that inspired people to continue to be anorexic. It was called Thinspiration. They gave you tips on how to suppress hunger and to vomit and not be caught, which I guess more is bulimia. Am I correct on that?
2: Um, I think they can go hand in hand. Mm. But I don't I don't know the, the ins and outs, I guess.
3: There were other sicknesses in this case, self-induced, that inspired fashion in the mid-20th century. We talked about this. For a while, it was fashionable in the 60s, especially in Hollywood, uh, to swallow tapeworm eggs to keep you thin. Oh, God. There are many more contemporary examples of illness-inspiring fashion. And as I said, it goes back 400 years. We've talked about Queen Elizabeth, and you mentioned this briefly, uh, Queen Elizabeth I— and since she was queen and had access to lots of sugar, her teeth rotted out.
2: That's the thing. Yeah.
3: And people saw the queen with no teeth and wanted to emulate that. So a uh, popular fashion in Elizabethan times was to black your teeth out with soot. Uh, it became the mark of beauty in the Sexy. 16th century in England. Also, Queen Elizabeth wore a lot of white face makeup, and this promoted pale complexions being equated with beauty and elevated class stature. A pale complexion indicated that a woman belonged to the upper class. But the reality of it was Queen Elizabeth used a thick white cosmetic called Venetian ceruse to cover the disfiguring smallpox marks on her face and neck. When she was 23, she suffered from smallpox and was horribly scarred, and this paste like white makeup was used to smooth out her complexion and because it made her look pale it created a fashion trend so blacken out your teeth and whitening your face
2: it's just so bizarre it's one of those things that you remember that story about the mom who cut the ends off the ham yeah that's what it reminds me of is like people are doing things and they don't necessarily know why.
3: Well, that story about the ham, some uh, kid asked his mother why she cuts the ends off of ham when she cooked ham. And she said, well, because my mother always did it. And then she asked her mother why she did it. And she said, I didn't have a pan big enough.
2: Yeah. And uh, so in this case, we are covering our faces with white makeup, but it's not to cover smallpox no. scars. It's uh, it's to just because look. it looks like the queen. Yep,
3: the most interesting example of disease inspiring fashion comes from the uh, late 18th century uh, to the mid 19th century. For about 80 years, tuberculosis was raging in the Western world, and Professor Carolyn Day, who authored a book called "Consumptive Chic." A History of Beauty, Fashion, and Disease, said uh, the symptoms of tuberculosis were physically flattering and a good fit for the beauty standards of the era. Quote, pale skin, rosy cheeks, dilated pupils, tiny waists, rounded shoulders, and visible clavicles. The classic Jane Austen look. In an interview with Avenue Magazine, Professor Day said, quote, health and activity were deemed vulgar. <laughs> Oh, bizarre. Languid and listless ladies sporting pale complexions were all the rage.
2: Just lots of lying down. Yeah. Is that why those couches became popular? The
3: The swooning couch? Maybe, yeah.
2: Because those bitches were hungry.
3: (laughs) They would swoon. They were swooning all the time.
2: It was a nonstop swoon factory. Swoon
3: fest, 1850. The aestheticization of tuberculosis became synonymous with feminine beauty gross. Tuberculosis or consumption was often nicknamed the white plague, but also called the romantic disease. Charlotte Bronte once wrote, quote, consumption, I am aware, is a flattering malady.
2: Oh, there's nothing more lovely than coughing up blood. I just (laughs) can't get enough.
3: Coughing up blood is hot. She wrote that in a letter uh, while watching her sister slowly die from tuberculosis. But doesn't she look lovely? So jealous. Lord Byron wished to die of consumption. He said, quote, how pale I look. I should like to think to die of consumption. Because then the women would say that poor Byron, how interesting he looks in
2: dying. That's how you get all the chicks. <laughs> die. What?
3: The look was popularized through the culture, uh, through novels and plays, famous portraits, even the opera, and the height of consumptive chic came in the mid-1800s, and it affected clothing fashions in a big way. For example, up until that point, the corsets that women wore were cinched extremely tight from the armpits down to the waistline and that made it difficult to breathe. You know, that's okay, except when you have tuberculosis. So they developed corsets that would cinch just the waist, but not the upper torso area to make it easier for people uh, to breathe because so many people had TB. The result was an extremely narrow waist creating an hourglass figure, which to this day we still look at as a sign of beauty. It was also determined that skirts that were long and flowing at the time often would drag through spittle and blood from a tuberculosis patient, and uh, that could spread the disease. This is when skirts started to become shorter. Consumptive chic is described this way, fashionable pointed corsets that show off low thin waists. Their skirts were shorter but fuller and emphasized The woman's narrow waists. They would then attempt to emulate the symptoms of tuberculosis with makeup. They would lighten their skin, redden their lips, and color their cheeks pink. Not too much different from today. Red lips, a little rouge on the cheeks. These were all symptoms of tuberculosis. And TB still has a lingering effect on today's society and, and styles. Once a woman's hemline was raised to keep her gowns from dragging and diseased spittle, <laughs> then shoe styles became more important because you could sh- you could see shoes for the first time. Sure, Victorian footwear became important in contributing to the woman's overall look and style. Doctors also began prescribing sunbathing as a treatment for TB. That, of course, led to the modern practice of tanning. But up until that point, pale skin was all the rage. And if you had a tan, you were considered a commoner or a farmer or someone who labored out of doors of lower class. But by the end of the 19th century, that had begun to change. Men's fashion changed, too. Up until this point. Not uh, as many
2: corsets. Not as many
3: corsets for men because, well, they're men and they don't need to have a thin waist up until this point big full sculpted beards and mustaches along with huge sideburns and other extravagant facial hair was all the rage but by the 1900s that had all but disappeared it was deemed that beards and mustaches were dangerous
2: (laughs) plus all that blood and spittle right well that's
3: really essentially it Edwin F. Bowers, a doctor in America, wrote in a 1916 article from McClure's magazine, quote, There is no way of computing the number of bacteria and noxious germs that may lurk in the Amazonian jungles as well as whiskered faces, but their number must be legion. Measles, scarlet fever, diphtheria, tuberculosis, whooping cough, common and uncommon colds, and a host of other infectious diseases – can be and undoubtedly are transmitted by the whisker root. Oh. When he wrote this in 1916, facial hair, at least on American men's faces, had almost completely disappeared, especially with doctors and surgeons. They were the sure. first.
2: That's why I like your facial hair is because it doesn't go around the mouth at all.
3: I can't stand it. You know, I couldn't do a full beard. I admire those who can, but uh, it just Dorito dust gets caught in it Mm. and it's just uncomfortable. Doritos dust makes my face itch. As time went on, because of the excessive weight loss and that waif-like look that Mm -hmm. the symptoms of tuberculosis caused, it... uh, Gradually evolved in, at least as far as what society thought, evolved into a, it became a feminine disease. Got it. Men didn't want to get it later in the 19th century because they thought it was an attack on their masculinity. So, So to separate themselves more from the feminine look, they began to go to the gym with the idea of building up muscle. And that's what men did. Gay men noticed this and also adopted the practice of exercising at the gym to build muscle, not so much to separate them from that tuberculosis slash feminine look, but to remain undetected in Victorian society.
2: Uh Uh-huh. And that's how we got the barrel chest. It,
3: It is. The beginning of the end of consumptive chic happened in 1882, a guy named Robert Koch discovered the tubercle bacillus bacterium, and uh, once that had been discovered, and the severe and contagious way that it killed, it stopped becoming romantic and mysterious and became something to combat. Uh, The romantic depictions of tuberculosis were quickly replaced with facts based in science, and tuberculosis stopped being a fashion and became a public health menace. Uh, But the echoes of consumption chic in that era, and the idea that disease can inspire fashion still is heard today. People, even today, are quite literally dying to be beautiful and have been for centuries. My information came from sciencemuseum.org, the Smithsonian, Ripley's Avenue Magazine, and Professor Carolyn A. Day's book, Consumptive Chic A History of beauty, fashion, and disease.
2: Well, that was upsetting. Just remember, freaks, you're beautiful just the way you are.
3: Especially if you're coughing up
0: blood. Wait, no! The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth.
3: You hear Kat and I talk a lot about aura frames, and there's a reason for that. We live in Ecuador, and our family is all over the place. In fact, Kat right now is up visiting her mom. And when I say up, I mean Maine... We got her an Aura frame so we could share photos and videos from any device and they'll instantly appear on the frame, which makes it easy because she's getting up there in years. It's easy to set up. It takes about two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app and it's the perfect gift for Mother's Day. Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. It is the perfect gift for Mother's Day. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get 30% off free shipping and their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code oddities at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Back in the year 1504, Christopher Columbus was stranded in Jamaica. The natives refused to give him any food. Columbus knew, however, the date and time of an upcoming lunar eclipse. So he told the natives that his gods were angry at their treatment of him, and they would provide a clear sign. Once the eclipse started, the natives raced to give him all the food he wanted and begged for his mercy. Christopher Columbus, what a knucklehead. Got an email from Hannah, Haycat and JG. Finally caught up after months and months of listening to your podcast. My parents were the ones to first introduce me to this podcast.
0: Yeah. Since
3: then, I've greatly surpassed them in listening to the episodes. Mm-hmm. Boo effects. Before you guys officially named this phenomena, and then she writes, do, 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 do. <laughs> I'd been experiencing boo effects like crazy, but I never took note of them but I want to share a couple of my favorites with you. Episode 331, I got home from work and I had the podcast paused for a moment and my dog was laying on the couch being all adorable. So me, being enthralled in her adorableness, went over to her, kissed her head and said, Hey Munch, hey Munch, hey Munchie. I never call my dog Munch or Munchie. It just came out of my face hole in the moment. After that, I went to my room to resume the podcast I turned it on and Kat said, We got this email from Munchie. I was beyond spooked. <laughs> Episode 406 Kat was sharing a Facebook message from a lady named Claire about how one of her nonverbal students went up to her when she was singing and just said, No. <laughs> Claire's my mom. That's her story. Oh! I notified her immediately, and she promptly freaked the heck out. I played it for her so she could hear it, and she got so excited. She tells the story every time somebody mentions anything about her singing. Danny Hoosel wanted to thank you guys again for being a ray of light in a somewhat long, drowsy day of data entry at my office, hoping to see you guys on a tour soon, maybe here in Virginia sometime. Mm. Just saying. (laughs) Colonial Williamsburg is pretty cool. Sending much love for my freaky heart and pork taint, Hannah. I love it. Thanks, Hannah. Lovely hearing from you, and please give our best to your mom, Claire.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with Nerdwallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day,
3: 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. Oh, well. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: More fun than a Civil War reenactment without the smell of fried chicken, sweaty wool, and sunscreen. This is The Box of Oddities.
2: Today we're going to talk about Annie Jones. Annie Jones was born in Virginia in the southwestern end of the Commonwealth, July 14th, 1865. Annie came into the world with hair covering her face. Say what? Now, Annie... That,
3: that sounds like she was just carrying disease with her everywhere. <laughs>
2: Annie's parents had a very similar reaction. They were in shock that they had this infant daughter with facial hair. And they were a little ashamed, actually. They didn't love this for their daughter. Mm. Um, They weren't into this journey for her. But quickly, they kind of changed their minds because they realized that they had a very unique opportunity that not everyone had given to them with the birth of a child. P.T. Barnum showed up. (laughs)
3: Right, I was going to say, that rare and unique opportunity, exploiting your child by helping her become a member of the ranks of circus folk.
2: (laughs) Well... Yeah. P.T. Barnum heard of this child and swiftly approached Annie's parents and asked, please, please let me have your baby. And um, they were like, yeah. So she was an infant? Yeah, she was an infant. Oh, my God. And awesome. So (laughs) Annie went to, quote unquote, work with P.T. Barnum when she was nine months old. Wow. So P.T. Barnum's uh, in New York City at this time, and her parents signed a three-year contract stating that Barnum would have the girl for three years and that Annie would be paid, well, not, I mean, Annie's parents would be paid $150 a week, wow. which at this time in 1865 was about $2,600 in today's money. Holy crap. That's, right. That's a,
3: that's a pretty hefty paycheck.
2: That's a ton. This little tiny baby was billed as the infant Esau and the most marvelous specimen of hirsute development known since the days of Esau. Esau's name in Hebrew means hairy. Um, so it's pretty literal translation. Okay. That's according to Genesis twenty five twenty five. It's a reference to his hairiness at birth. So within the first year, Annie's mom moved back home to Virginia, leaving the toddler with a nanny in New York while she was working with P.T. Barnum. And it was at this point that that a local phrenologist spotted an opportunity, took interest in the girl and hatched a plan to kidnap her.
3: Oh my God.
2: So this phrenologist did just that, snatched her and took her to upstate New York where he was attempting to make money by privately showing Annie.
3: You can never trust a phrenologist. I don't know how many times I've said this.
2: So, eventually, word got around uh, that this is what was going on, and Barnum and the police found her in a church fair being exhibited, but the kidnapper was claiming that Annie was his own daughter, and so the whole thing had to go to court. The case was brought to court, and Annie was given back after being separated from both groups of people the judge just like let her loose and she ran to her own parents so the judge said aha see this is this is the, what's happening this is the truth obviously she knows who her parents are and so that the case it was closed and there, there's no word, I can't find anything on any repercussions for this phrenologist or jail time or wow. anything. It's just, okay, these are her parents. Bye, everyone. <laughs> have a good day. Make sure
3: you close that door tightly. It jiggles.
2: Now, um, it is speculated that this whole thing might have actually been a publicity stunt by P.T. Barnum. You know,
3: I wouldn't be surprised. It's like that story where he was exhibiting... Um, an elderly African-American woman, as George Washington's nurse. Right. And a newspaper article came out saying that...
2: Um, she, she was not George Washington's nurse. Right. So
3: P.T. Barnum made a public statement saying, that is true, they were right, she is not George Washington's nurse, she's actually a robot. And she was just an elderly African-American woman. Not a robot. Not a robot. No. Or George Washington's nurse.
2: Or a robot who was George Washington's nurse. Would have
3: been cool if that was true.
2: Right? None of the above. So at this point, uh, Annie's brought back to the circus, but Annie's mother decided that she would stay there and not leave her with a, a nanny anymore because that's dangerous. By the age of five, Annie had a mustache and sideburns and a beard, and as she aged, her name was changed to reflect her age and during her career. So at this point, she became the bearded girl, and then she became the bearded lady. But Annie was certainly not the only bearded lady, and it, it's kind of embarrassing, actually, I think, for the circus industry to have, like, 19 bearded ladies. Like, can't we come up with some other names... Julia Pastrana was a performer and singer around the same time who had hypertrichosis and was known as the Bearded Lady. Josephine Cufulia, who was a Swiss born lady who toured with P.T. Barnum's American Museum in the 1850s, right around the same time, also a Bearded Lady. Hmm. Like, let's come up with some more creative names. That's just what I'm saying.
3: Furry females.
2: Right? And there's alliteration right there. And
3: that always makes it better for alliteration marketing.
2: Alliteration always makes it better. So Annie started to learn what worked for the audience. She began playing up her womanly aspects to contrast her facial hair. Mm -hmm. So she took etiquette lessons. She learned to sing and dance and to play the mandolin. She dressed in the very finest feminine fashionable clothing. And she became one of Barham's most popular attractions. Now, at the age of 15 or 16, it's unclear... Annie was married to Richard Elliott, who was a professional sideshow barker or ballytalker. He was an adult man who married this child. How, How old was she? 15 or 16. All right. Apparently, Annie's family disapproved of the marriage, but it happened anyway. And I don't know how exactly that worked out. But from this point, Richard did his best to actually conceal how young Annie was, probably because he knew he was gross. Anyway, (laughs) Annie's hair continued to grow. It was beautiful. And she had six feet in length. And photographers came from far and wide to take her photo. And her pictures spread all over the world including photographer Matthew Brady, who took her portrait. And um, she's quite lovely. Annie became not just an exhibit, but a spokesperson for P.T. Barnum shows. And she took this position very seriously. And with one of the things she wanted to do with this position was change the way her colleagues were treated. One of her efforts was urging people to refer to her friends and co-workers as sideshow performers rather than freaks Mm.
3: and the term freak became popular in describing these types of shows and i think it was like about 1870 ish toward the end of the 19th century and was used right up through the 1960s it's hard to believe isn't it
2: yeah and freak um originated from i think a term meaning to dance and that it still does you know freak out Mm -hmm. le freak say chic you know Anyway. I
3: think it comes from a French word that that does mean dance. Yeah, something like that.
2: It comes from that song.
3: That song, Freak Out. Okay, sidebar. Come over here. When that song first was written by Sheik... It was about Studio 54 and about how they could not get into Studio 54. It was so um, exclusive. If you weren't Andy Warhol or Elizabeth Taylor, you couldn't get into Studio 54. It was the place to be. And they couldn't get in. So they wrote the song and it wasn't originally, ah, freak out. It was, ah, fuck off.
2: Oh, because they were pissed they couldn't get in? Yep. Yep. Now, is that true or did you just make that up? No, it's true. And now... On with the countdown. Now, keep in mind, this is before uh, we took back the word freak, and we now use it as a term of endearment.
3: That's right. To be a freak now is a position of honor.
2: Annie remained married to Gross Richard Elliott for 15 (laughs) years until the two got a divorce in 1895. Not long after that, Annie married a man named William Donovan, who was also a sideshow barker, and according to some, her childhood sweetheart. Mm-hmm. Annie and William were, by all accounts, very happy together. And the two decided that they would travel as a duo act for a while. So they went to Europe together. And Annie was an independent feature attraction. And William was like her agent and her barker. So he would gather up all the people and get them excited about the show. The and Ballyhoo, they, that's
3: it, what they call it. Exactly.
2: Yeah. And I think that's got to be kind of cute, right? That you know that this man is her husband and he's like, come one, come all. See the most amazing woman ever. And she's like, (laughs) you know, it's just kind of nice, I think. Anyway.
3: (laughs) I'm sure that's exactly how it happens, too. (laughs)
2: Unfortunately, William and Annie were married for only four years before he passed away. And at this point, Annie had never been on her own. So rather than continue on her own, she opted to return to the only home that she had known before she was married to William. She rejoined P.T. Barnum's greatest show on earth. And she did that for a couple of years until 1902 when she went to visit her mother in Brooklyn. While she was visiting her mother, she became very ill.
3: It was the all the germs in her beard.
2: It was probably that, yes. She got tuberculosis. Shut up. I I will not shut up. Are you kidding me? No. She ended up passing away at the age of 37 in 1902.
3: Wow, wow. it sounds like she made quite a bit of her lot in life
2: she did but she never knew anything outside of being a sideshow attraction i mean her entire life was being on display she
3: was what nine months old you said yeah wow must be the notification of the delivery of my beard comb
2: is it an antibacterial beard comb
3: it's a, (laughs) a delousing um comb it's amazing that back in the day, you could essentially rent your kid to the circus.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And just go back home to Virginia while the money keeps coming in. <laughs> yeah,
3: just stick her with a nurse. It, it would have been better if her nurse had been a robot.
2: Ooh, that yeah. could have been fun. It would have been great. I got my information from All That's Interesting, Morbid and Macabre, The Human Marvels, and Google Pronounce Help.
3: That's become one of our favorite go-to sites. (laughs) Want to thank our most recent patrons.
2: Willie, Christine, Shannon, and Bailey. So glad that you have joined us. We do have a uh, bonus episode coming right up this week. As well as our monthly Zoom call. And
3: that's all part of being a member of the Order of Freaks. And you can support the box and also become a member of the order. Just go to theboxofoddities.com and the link is right there. It says support the show or something like that. I don't know. I haven't looked at it for something. a while. Yeah. And we appreciate all your support and we look forward to seeing you next time.
2: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
3: Fly it proudly, you beautiful
0: freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True. That is, two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the box of oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.
2: All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's this day in history, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus, tons of extra themed episodes.